1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to our podcast where we talk about new books and media and communications. I am your host, Marcy Maserato. Back with me today is Patrick Bixby, and today we're going to be talking about his uh, book, Nietzsche and Irish Modernism. Patrick, welcome back. Thank you again for joining us.
0: Thank you very much for having me back.
1: So Nietzsche and Irish Modernism, really compelling title. Let's just start with why. What, what inspired you to dive into on this particular topic?
0: Well, I've been studying Irish modernism since I was in graduate school. And even then it struck me just how often uh, Nietzsche's name came up in relation to some of the major figures in Irish modernism, people like uh, W.B. Yeats and, and James Joyce. And there had been some you know, efforts to account for that here and there. In fact, a couple book-length studies related to Yeats but none of them were satisfactory in my estimation, and none of them tried to account for Nietzsche's broader influence across Irish culture during that period, the first half of the 20th century, more or less. And because he's such a major figure and such a major figure in the study of modernist literature, but he had not been addressed in the context that included these major figures, it seemed like a, a gap in the literature And it just so happened that I'm very interested in Nietzsche's thoughts and in those writers as well. So uh, everything kind of lined up and made it a perfect project for me to spend uh, way too long working on.
1: I mean, how long have you been working on this project specifically?
0: Well, I I think the idea goes all the way back to graduate school, which was uh, nearly 20 years ago now. Um, The writing was kind of sporadic because of other projects and responsibilities. So you know, maybe ten years since I put the first word on the page. Uh, so it's it's good to have it uh, between the boards, as they say, and out there in the world. Uh, you know, I matured as a scholar during the process. So I think that that long period of gestation was was worth it. Um, and like I say, it was sporadic. I didn't work ten years straight on it. I wouldn't have survived that, uh, <laughs> I don't think. But. Um, with the amount of archival work that was involved and then dealing with all these major figures and the secondary literature associated with each of them, it did take uh, quite a lot of work to get through it all.
1: I I imagine so, yeah. (laughs) Um, So you start off with the introduction fairly basic where you talk about Nietzsche Ireland and modernism. So how did Nietzsche get to Ireland?
0: Well, um, only sporadically and usually through sources published in Great Britain, at least in the early years. Um, His introduction to the English-speaking world was really through Max Nordau's text, Degeneration, which does not give a flattering account of Nietzsche's thought, but nonetheless introduced the English-speaking world, England, Ireland, and the United States to his thought his major themes, his general orientation towards the philosophical tradition and so forth. Uh, and although, as I say, it was not a flattering account, Murdau classes Nietzsche as one of the great degenerates, uh, it was a, a stimulating account, let's say, and one I think that attracted a lot of readers to Nietzsche's work as it began to be published uh, in the latter half of the 1890s in the English language. and. Uh, Gates and Shaw and Joyce, these figures I've already alluded to, um, were aware of that publication. It was a fairly major sort of intellectual event, especially in the aftermath of Nordau's text and all the attention that it brought to Nietzsche. And uh, so they were early readers of his work, um, but Nietzsche's presence in Irish culture, more broadly had to wait till the, the first decade of the 20th century, when he began to be filtered through some of these writers, and when the um, sort of journalistic response to his work in English began in Irish newspapers and so forth.
1: Now, in the introduction, you uh, talk about um, George Edgerton, um, who's the pen name of um, Mary um, Chevalita Dune, and I I found that incredibly fascinating because I was not familiar with that voice. Can you talk about her and? how she influenced Nietzsche coming into Irish literature and Irish um, scholarly works and and Irish thinking.
0: She is a a key figure in this story. And I I was not all that familiar with her work when I became aware of this connection. But as Irish modernism as a kind of critical category has gained uh, momentum in the last decade or so, She has increasingly appeared uh, in those conversations as a a key early figure, writing in this broader so-called new woman movement of the 1880s and 1890s. Um, She was very much an international figure, uh, lived and uh, worked in Australia, in Latin America, on the continent, but her formative years were in Ireland and she identified as an Irish writer but she had spent time in Scandinavia during uh, the sort of early years of Nietzsche's reception there. The Scandinavians, with George Brandeis taking up the lead, were among the first to uh, really respond uh, strongly to Nietzsche's work and to begin a a critical literature on his work, so um, she had the German language. She was well acquainted with a number of uh, figures in the Scandinavian literati. And so she was well positioned to um, be part of the sort of first wave of reception of Nietzsche's work. And then it's through her writing that um, elements of his work begins to filter into the English speaking world. Uh, The London literary scene primarily where her work was published, but then um, across to Ireland as well over the succeeding decade or so. So uh, her writing is fascinating in its own right, and I think uh, underappreciated even now, even though she has been taken up in these conversations. Uh, But she's crucial in this story because um, she got there first in many ways when it came to uh, recognizing Nietzsche's significance and the way that his work could be translated into other forms. She wrote primarily in the short story form and, uh, you know, adopted his ideas, transformed them into elements of characterization, elements of plots, and so forth. Um, Not in an uncritical way. She was an arch-feminist, and Nietzsche wouldn't be, you know, the first thinker you might turn to with that in mind. But she uh, was able to take elements of his thought, the challenge to prevailing values uh, that is So present in his work and turn that to her own social and political causes and to create some remarkable fiction in the process.
1: Yeah, I thought that was really fascinating to have a to to not only come across her and see so much of the things that she was doing and how we don't really hear about her or know about her, which kind of reminds me of our previous conversation about Kathleen uh, Murphy about these, you know, prolific, uh, wonderful writers, female writers. that don't that that we we still are are kind of largely undiscovered in some ways and also to see that um she was a a feminist and how and that's as you just mentioned that's definitely not what you think of when you when you read or 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 discuss Nietzsche. And do you think that she how how was she able to really bring in Nietzsche into her discourse which is staunchly feminist. And as you mentioned, like the new woman writing of, of the late 1800s, how do you think she was able to successfully do that? And what would have inspired her to look at Nietzsche specifically when he was known for being really not that at all?
0: Well, he was a disruptive figure and she sought to be much the same if in other spheres. And uh, you know, his example Of challenging the reigning institutions and values of uh, European culture served her well with her own social and political concerns as she wrote um, to announce a a new kind of strident feminist voice uh, along with her contemporaries in that movement. But uh, I think Nietzsche gave her a particularly useful tool, set of tools, if you like, through the um, various concepts that uh, had begun to circulate at that time. And in that way, she's an example of what these later writers would do as well as Nietzsche's thought as a whole is not systematic. It's not um, coherent per se. I mean, he liked his own contradictions and was proud enough to own them. Um, But it was this toolbox of concepts that challenged many of those prevailing ideas that uh, were very much the concern of modernism as a movement. And Edgerton as an early proponent or, you know, early figure that would later be associated with that work um, was eager to find ways, as it were, to to do this. And Nietzsche provided a way. She could jettison some of his, you know, misogynistic claims. He wasn't consistent on that himself but there's certainly some nasty things in there. Um, but she was able to Genesis uh, get rid of all that uh, and take up the parts that were useful to her. And it's this sort of um, appropriation of Nietzsche's thought, which is particularly interesting to me. It's not that any of these uh, writers were merely acolytes or you know, trying to spread the gospel of Nietzsche in some way, but rather that they found something useful th- for their own art um, you know, often combining Nietzsche's ideas with indigenous concerns about culture and society.
1: And I think it's important to contextualize, because uh, you talk about a lot in the book, um, and and I don't know how familiar our listeners are with, uh, like, Nietzsche's concept of the superman or the overman. Um, it does come, it, you know, it's a recurring theme in his work, as well as, like, in what you specifically talk about, uh, particularly when you go into talk about um, Shaw and, and Yates and and Joyce, can you talk a little bit more about that context um, of Nietzsche's work, and then and then we kind of break it down from there in terms of how the Irish thinkers uh, brought that to light in their
0: own writing? Sure, and and we can start with the Ubermensch because it, it was one of the ideas that attracted a lot of attention early on. Uh, certainly, it's a key idea for Nietzsche, but it was sort of outsized in the early reception of his work. So. The idea of, of the ubermensch, and that's a term that was variously translated uh, in those early years as Superman, overman, uh, beyond man, is a figure who challenges those reigning orthodoxies uh, about uh, gender roles, about uh, values and morality. Uh, and. What is key here though, is that he represents a kind of challenge to the status quo, as it were, a figure of humanity beyond what man has been made into by the Western tradition, but his exact specifications, as it were, are not clearly defined in Nietzsche's thought, allowing those who would take up his ideas later on to make of that figure what they would, whether that was a kind of exemplar of the next phase of human evolution or a challenge to reigning gender roles as in Edgerton's case, or uh, a kind of artistic hero who transcended the aesthetic norms of their age. So the Ubermensch as an idea represented this kind of potentiality for those who would take him up in a variety of contexts, Um, with some residue of Nietzsche's original idea of this overcoming figure but um, with plenty of uh, leeway for their own uh, artistic interpretation of that figure.
1: And do you think overall in, in your research and how you, you brought this into this book that these Irish voices misinterpreted the, his concept of Ubermensch or didn't, or they really did um, Kind of appropriated into their own voices in, in a particularly interesting way.
0: Well, certainly the latter, and whether one wants to call that misinterpretation or not, is is a good question. Really, um, Nietzsche was notoriously prone to misinterpretation or interpretations that seem to at least belie his uh, social and political affiliations during his lifetime. Um, but as I say in the case of the Ubermensch particularly, but this is also true for other elements of his thought, he is open to interpretation and reinterpretation uh, in different contexts. And what I try to demonstrate in the book is the way that uh, these writers took up Nietzsche's ideas, um, not just Ubermensch, of course, but things like slave morality, noble values, the death of God, uh, ideas all closely associated with the sort of brand name of Nietzsche, as we've come to know him, and uh, redeployed those in the context of Ireland's particular historical circumstances, its relationship with the British Empire, the Home Rule Movement, which was afoot uh, during this period, and then after the um, Home Rule Movement succeeded in gaining Irish independence and the problems of state building and so forth that uh, followed. So. Uh, Ireland was a kind of uh, laboratory, if you will, for uh, these social and political ideas because it was such a fraught environment, because there was so much transformation taking place. And Nietzsche served as, seemed to serve the interests of these writers, but each in a different way. So Edgerton had one take, primarily using Nietzsche for her feminist cause, but Uh, W.B. Yeats, George Bernard Shaw, James Joyce, and then a host of minor figures who were also interested in Nietzsche, um, had their individual interpretation of his work, which served their aesthetic or broadly cultural and political ends.
1: Now, in the introduction, you also, you talk a little bit about the, like the literary ideals in Ireland at the time, and and you talk about how Irish writers and intellectuals uh, tended to, to be reluctant. To reach some sort of um, consensus of the values that they should pursue as as a nation as they enter this kind of new century. So, was there was there not a a norm ish kind of across these Irish intellectuals before Nietzsche was brought in as as a disruptor? Did you find anything that demonstrated that there was, or they were just kind of all over the place in terms of of how they they looked at these um, Irish ideals? Well,
0: certainly the most prominent force in Irish culture during this period, 1890s through um, let's say 1916 when the Easter Rebellion took place was Irish cultural nationalism. Of course, there was a variety of perspectives and opinions represented under that uh, title as well. But the idea of forging independence on the cultural um, plane as an accompaniment, perhaps a precursor to independence on the political plane. So um, if there was a kind of center of gravity to Irish culture, it was certainly the nationalist or cultural nationalist thing, which included a language movement, a revival of uh, Native mythology and folklore, and then, as in Yeats' case, the effort to forge a a Native theater uh, movement as well. But those uh, currents in Irish culture were resisted by a number of figures, and James Joyce perhaps being the most uh, evident, but many others as well, who were more oriented towards, uh, let's say, cosmopolitan influences, European influences, other traditions of literature and thought that they would uh, integrate into their native concerns and produce an art that was Irish but that was not insular as a cultural nationalist movement might be conceived to be. So uh, through this period, the 1890s and into the the 1910s and beyond, there was considerable debate about how these different cultural forces should be harnessed uh, in the service of creating an independent national culture. debate that took place uh, amongst uh, W.B. Yeats and John Eglinton and uh, and George Russell uh, quite famously sort of laid out the the different points of, of contestation. And, uh, you know, they went back and forth for a time to the extent that they wrote enough uh, newspaper articles to form a book, which was then published under that title you alluded to literary ideals in Ireland. So that's one of my starting points for thinking about the kind of contest taking place in the cultural field in Ireland. And then what is remarkable is that Nietzsche is um, brought into this contest in a sense by the different players because they all become interested in his work in one way or another and harness different elements of it to advance their particular vision of Irish culture. So um, he's an ally to each of them, uh, even if their causes are are opposed at some points.
1: You also talk about, you know, the powerful influence of the Catholic Church um, in Ireland and Irish culture, which seemed to still have a stronghold at the time when the rest of Europe was um, kind of shifting. And so that kind of meant that Ireland stayed fairly conservative, socially, like sexually repressed and and things like that, how does that, and that certainly is opposing to what, when we think about Nietzsche and his views on religion and God and things like that, how do you think that that influenced some of these scholars and these intellectuals uh, and these writers to, to want to bring Nietzsche into the, into the discourse?
0: Well, certainly that's one area where he was a disruptive figure. Um, and he served the interests of uh, someone like Yeats insofar as he did disrupt the Catholic uh, status quo. Uh, Yeats was an outsider to that himself, though he was a cultural nationalist as well. And in attempting to forge his own vision of Irish culture, Nietzsche became an ally in part because he um, was ready to dispose of uh, religious faith, uh, at least in the conventional or institutionalized sense that, uh, that reigned in Ireland. Uh, and then, you know, this, this is part of the story all the way through. It becomes quite prominent later in the book when um, Nietzsche is introduced into the debates about Ireland's role in the First World War. Uh, due to the uh, journalistic intervention of um, TM Kettle, who was an Irish nationalist who went off to the continent, to a devout Catholic too, I should mention, who went off to the continent to to raise arms for the Republican cause, um, but then was stuck there in Belgium uh, when the First World War began in August of 1914 and was a firsthand witness to the so-called rape of Belgium and began to write a series of uh, articles for British papers as a kind of war correspondent. And his thesis was that the First World War was essentially Nietzsche's fault, although he'd been dead for a decade and a half by then. Um, But his example had served the Kaiser and the kind of belligerent politics that led up to the war. And then that became a keynote in British propaganda in the effort to rally support for a response. And interestingly, it also filtered into Irish culture because the um, Catholic clergy primarily saw this threat posed by the Kaiser and Nietzsche's example as a threat not just to Britain and its empire, but to the Christian faith. And so they were allied with England, even in this moment of home rule agitation, insofar as they both stood together against Nietzsche and his anti-Christian views. So Nietzsche becomes a prominent figure in Irish newspapers during this period, often through articles and lectures uh, that were written by uh, Catholic clergymen and and published in a kind of propagandistic effort to uh, move past the animosities between Ireland and England and towards a kind of allied effort in response to the German menace, Nietzsche being the sort of mascot for that uh, by the time they weighed in at at the end of 1914.
1: And then you dive into, and you start talking about George Bernard Shaw, and and he's certainly a prolific writer, and with many many strong ideals, um, some that are deeply concerning. So there's just kind of off the off the bat, you there's kind of see some general. Um, similarities, perhaps, between him and Nietzsche. And he even, as you kind of start off the chapter, talk about how he even claimed half-jokingly that he was the English or Irish Nietzsche. Um, So talk about that and, and really kind of where Shaw meets Nietzsche.
0: Yeah, so one element of my thesis is that these different writers adopted Nietzsche's ideas, not just for their own kind of intellectual force, but because Nietzsche had become this controversial figure, this oppositional figure, this disruptive force. um, In uh, attaching themselves to him, they gained a certain kind of cultural capital uh, in the process as dissidents, as disruptive figures themselves. And that's how Shaw styled himself, certainly. And he was very much a self-promoter. And uh, Nietzsche served, insofar as Nietzsche's name had become a kind of brand name by the beginning of the 20th century. He served Shaw's own political aims. Shaw was uh, closely allied with the Fabian Socialist movement by then. And, uh, you know, a relatively small, political movement in England, but represented by some major intellectual figures, and Shaw being one of the the major mouthpieces of that movement, uh, speaking and publishing widely on the idea. And then in this play that is in the background of what we're talking about, Man and Superman, which adopts that figure out of Nietzsche's philosophy as part of its title, Shaw essentially integrates his views on... um, Political economics on on socialism, on um, the philosophical tradition, and on his burgeoning interest in eugenics, using Nietzsche as a way of uh, sort of advancing these ideas um, within the intellectual or conceptual framework of the play, but also as a way of sort of advertising his disruptive point of view to potential theater goers or or those who would buy the printed version of the play uh, because the Superman had already taken on this kind of um, outsider's status as as this figure to be feared if you were uh, a staid late Victorian type or a figure to be embraced if you were a modern or modernist when it came to cultural matters. So uh, Nietzsche was useful for Shaw in in a variety of ways. And he gave quite a lot of attention to Nietzsche, often defending him against his detractors while taking issue with some elements of Nietzsche's thought himself. But he wrote reviews of Nietzsche's works as they were being published in the latter half of the 1890s. Um, So he became an important figure in sort of um, distributing Nietzsche's thought in the English-speaking world. And then in his play Man and Superman, he takes that a step further by writing this sprawling work of drama that is grounded um, in important ways in Nietzsche's thought, and particularly that idea of the Ubermensch.
1: Perhaps one of Shaw's most kind of controversial viewpoints is he was a strong proponent and believer of eugenics. And and you do mention that um, in that chapter. Can you talk more about how that kind of influenced his thinking and his writing, as well as how he uh, brought Nietzsche into that discussion.
0: Yeah, so in Shaw's rather idiosyncratic uh, political philosophy, the hope of bringing about gradual change, this was the Fabian thesis, that one could bring about a socialist society through gradual um, political interventions No dramatic revolution was necessary, but advocacy, propaganda, electioneering, and so forth would eventually bring about the kinds of social, political, and economic transformations that the Fabian socialists desired. Shaw, by the beginning of the 20th century, was getting impatient with that idea, believed that the British populace wasn't ready to make that change, that they weren't moving along in the way that he had desired. Uh, And he became increasingly interested in in eugenics. This was a broadly held set of ideas at the time, as shocking as that may seem to us now, and not by any means as controversial as those ideas look to us from 100 years or more distance. Uh, But Shaw's idea was that if we can't get the populace as it is to transform their um, politics, then what we need to do is transform the populace through eugenics to breed a more uh, effective, a fitter political animal that would be suited to his Fabian socialist ends. So part of the reason he's interested in Nietzsche is this idea of the Ubermensch as an evolutionary or eugenic outcome, a superior kind of human individual who is Nietzsche's rendering capable of all sorts of things, but in Shaw's particular rendering capable of being a proper socialist. So there's already a strange kind of uh, contradiction there because the Ubermensch is so often associated with a kind of hyper individualism. But for Shaw, he was really a vehicle towards arriving at this ideal socialist society. And uh, so his play is an effort to sort of frame a political philosophy through dramatic means and then to promote that political philosophy uh, amongst his audience members and perhaps even to uh, convince them that this was the way forward, that a kind of eugenicist program was possible. Uh, Some of this is tongue in cheek. Some of this is ironic. Um, He's allowed himself a bit of distance between Shaw, the, the individual, and these ideas insofar as they're voiced by his characters or you know, blamed on Nietzsche's philosophy or other sources, but uh, they're, they're rather insidious ideas nonetheless, and um, they only became more prominent in his work as the century went along.
1: And then you move on to, to talk about W.B. Yeats. And you already mentioned that he's in terms of the Catholic identity, the religious identity, he was already, um, an outsider and shared that with Nietzsche. What, uh, what originally attracted Yeats to Nietzsche's writing?
0: That's, that's a good question. Uh, I think there are a number of factors. Um, one is the writing itself, the style of his writing, uh, a lot was made of Nietzsche's style, is still made of Nietzsche's style. And I think for Yeats, in trying to forge a dramatic voice, he was almost exclusively a poet until the turn of the 20th century when he began to write for the theater and spent most of that first decade of the 20th century trying to uh, write plays, but also to found a national theater in various guises. And so uh, Nietzsche's style, Nietzsche's voice was useful to him there. Uh, and then the concepts that we've come to associate with Nietzsche, his his regard for aesthetics, his challenge to morality, his um, critique of democratic values, all of these appealed to Yeats in some way. But particularly, and this is what gives the title of, of the chapter I've written this notion of a proud, hard, gift-giving joyousness, a kind of ethos of uh, Nietzschean thoughts, perhaps most clearly evinced in the Ubermensch, but in other elements of his thought as well, in Zarathustra's approach to his disciples, for instance, in Thus Big Zarathustra. And that was uh, an ethos that Yeats harnessed in this effort to forge or found a national theater, one that would, he hoped, help to shape the conscience of the Irish people as they moved towards independence, as they moved into the 20th century. And so those um, conceptual elements, Nietzsche's critique of morality, his ideas about bad conscience, his ideas about resentment, resentment, and so forth, all of those play a role in the conceptual framework of his drama as well.
1: And was him moving into this space of, of becoming a, a playwright and focusing on theater? As you mentioned in the the chapter, Yates and, and Shaw really kind of conceived this the the space of a theater as a way to kind of shape consciousness. Is that what was really his impetus for wanting to go into becoming a playwright into theater? Was it really to shape that consciousness? And that's really what Nietzsche offered him a space to do?
0: Well, certainly there were aesthetic reasons, you know, his his wanting to experiment with other forms and move outside of poetry. But there were these broader cultural, even political motives for Yeats as well. His desire to address the Irish people in a way that he helped, hoped would lead them towards Uh, their potential as a nation. So the sort of grand ideas about what the theater can do. Uh, And so the idea of a specifically national theater that would serve that role for the Irish public was very much uh, in Yeats' mind as he turned his efforts to the theater. And the, the paradox there, though, is that even early in his career writing for the theater, even before the turn of the 20th century, in fact, he had experienced the opprobrium of the theater going uh, public, the the critical or negative response to his work that he hadn't necessarily expected given his, um, his motives. And so he was always stranded between this idea that he would be able to use the theater to uh, lead the Irish people to some kind of um, glory, some kind of greater heights as a collective, and the notion that the theater-going public was not much more than a mob or a crowd who were unreceptive to these kind of noble uh, values that he was trying to impose upon them. So it was a it was a conflicted effort on Yeats' part, and uh, you know, Nietzsche's more... Um, critical remarks about democratic politics, about crowds, about mass culture and mass politics, Um, also served Yates in this kind of uh, cynicism that he developed during the the decade.
1: And how successful do you think that he ultimately was within the space of being a playwright and and theater?
0: Well, that's an open question for scholars. I I think it's almost universally recognized that he was a far better poet than playwright, Uh, but the uh, theater that he founded is still in existence. It still serves that role as a national theater if in a very different context now. Um, His plays are still performed um, and his efforts uh, to advance the careers of other playwrights uh, were very important to the history of the Irish theater as well. So certainly he had a, a large impact and I think it's just as certain, at least this is the case I'm making, that Nietzsche played an important role in how he conceived that effort and how he carried it out.
1: And what do you think was really the a key idea of Nietzsche's that really inspired Yeats to be in that space? Because, I mean, certainly in the theater, he wanted to shape that consciousness, as we've talked about. But is there another idea that you think that he... That really influenced him, and, and where he was successfully able to elicit some change in consciousness through his plays.
0: Well, I'd go back to this notion of the proud, hard, gift-giving, joyousness. It's kind of ethos that's manifest in Nietzsche's philosophy. That is um, a way of approaching life that is um, is abundant, is uh, brave, is uh, untethered and is appropriate to a people who are going to experience their independence, at least as Yeats hoped and plotted in in the very near future. Um, and his uh, protagonist Kuhullen, figure out of Irish mythology, who appears in a number of Yeats' plays during that decade, becomes a kind of embodiment of this ethos and a sort of, as it were, role model is for an ethical orientation for the Irish people in those plays. So um, I think Yeats was successful in creating emblems of this new ethos that would define the conscience of the Irish people. of course, he was nowhere as successful as he wanted to be in actually uh, having his audience take up that ethos or you know sort of play along with the uh, efforts that he was engaged in. But the, the work stands and continues to uh, exemplify those values uh, even now, of course.
1: And then for your third chapter, you focus on James Joyce. Uh, and you title it Joyce, James Overman. How did James Joyce come across Nietzsche?
0: Well, he was um, well attuned to new movements in uh, art and thoughts coming from the continent. His attraction to Ibsen is another example of that. So, you know, as Nietzsche became this kind of intellectual fad uh, in the late 1890s and early 20th century, Joyce would have encountered him. I'm sure he spoke about Nietzsche with his friends. Nietzsche was a kind of uh, constant in any uh, conversation that's pretended towards the intellectual at the time. So, you know, there was a bit of posing going on here too, I think you'd have to say that, you know, Nietzsche was such a fashionable uh, figure and so um, fear-inducing for members of the sort of political status quo and so forth, that he became uh, attractive to young men who, who were, you know, pushing against that as they were trying to find their place in the world and also to, you know, forge artistic careers. So uh, very early on, uh, uh, Joyce uses this phrase, James Overman, to sign a letter of his to linking his own name with the ubermensch or Nietzsche's figure of of self-overcoming. But not too long after that, he also develops a kind of skepticism about all of this. But all along, and I think this is the role that Nietzsche plays most crucially for Joyce, the idea of a kind of independent artistic vision that isn't beholden to tradition, uh, whether literary or, or national or otherwise, um, was you know, part of Joyce's project as an artist. And the Uber mentioned many of other many other ideas from Nietzsche served him in trying to articulate that. It's very present in his first uh, abandoned novel Stephen Hero. And then you can find it sort of lingering in the background in A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, which, as the title suggests, is a book about how one develops this artistic vision, develops a kind of artistic independence, Uh, not necessarily successfully, but the effort is there. And then um, as that artistic vision sort of um, comes to its conclusion in the opening chapters of Ulysses, where where Stephen Dottilus, the protagonist of Stephen Hero and A portion of the Artist is found back in Ireland, having uh, failed at his efforts to uh, launch uh, an artistic career. Uh, Nietzsche's thought is very present in the opening chapters of Ulysses uh, to the extent that it's one of the main um, sort of cultural touchstones in the first chapter of that iconic book. Uh, And despite that, and this is one of the reasons I was attracted to all of this, not much has been said about that fact. There are um, a half dozen direct allusions to Nietzsche's thought in the first chapter of Ulysses, but um, critics have more or less ignored that over the years.
1: Now, You mentioned in the chapter that one of the things that Joyce seemed to be most attracted to in Nietzsche was something that kind of aligned with the idea of individualism. And how how do you think that Joyce really brought that into his writing in a really successful way.
0: Well, those two books I've just alluded to, Stephen Hero and A Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man, are efforts to understand the psychology and let's say social positioning of a young man who desires to be fully an individual. In the context of this um, Catholic society, that uh, is also experiencing this home rule movement and the rise of cultural nationalism. All of these forces competing for his allegiance while he's trying to remain in some sense aloof or individual. And so Nietzsche's thought, because it is um, disruptive of the status quo, it's posed against these sort of prevailing ideologies, became a resource for, Stephen Dautilus, Nietzsche, or Joyce being, um, you know, the kind of autobiographical double of Stephen Dautilus, Dautilus being a kind of avatar for him and working through what it would mean to detach oneself from home, from these uh, influences of family, of church, of nation, of empire, and so forth. And so early on, I think Nietzsche was quite important for uh, Joyce and for his characters modeled on his own life experience. But then by the time we get to Ulysses, I think he had begun to move past that uh, to a broader vision uh, embodied in, in the other protagonist of that book, Leopold Bloom, who is more of an everyman, um, and though he is an outsider in his society, desires a kind of connection with others. and Uh, is possessed of an ethos very different from that articulated in in Nietzsche's thoughts. So uh, the the Nietzschean ideas at that point become a kind of foil or counterpoint to another uh, ethos of of openness and inclusion and so forth that is embodied in in Joyce's other protagonists. So you see an evolution in Joyce's response to Nietzsche through the course of these books um, to the point where Uh, Although he becomes, Nietzsche becomes a a sort of counterpoint, he is still part of the conceptual framework of those books.
1: And you mentioned it a few moments ago, and you've mentioned it in in the chapter as well, that, for example, it's obvious that in, in some capacities that Joyce brought in Nietzschean ideas into. For example, Ulysses, which is a certainly a very famous text, why hasn't that been something that has been talked about in in a greater stage, really?
0: Well, that's a good question. It's not that no one has noticed and no one has mentioned it. I, I shouldn't uh, shouldn't say that, but um, it it was striking to me to recognize these allusions, which are quite overt. They're not hidden in that opening chapter of this. Iconic book, one of the masterpieces, if not the masterpiece, of modernism in general, and certainly of Irish modernism. Uh, and then, you know, very little critical response. And it's evident in that first chapter that, you know, Nietzsche is an important voice amongst these competing points of view, ideologies, movements, and so forth that are uh, at that moment in a contest for defining the Irish people, just as Yates was part of that effort to to use the cultural field as a means of defining Irish society. So there are many other voices involved in that first chapter and throughout Ulysses, of course. But uh, having recognized how prominent Nietzsche is in the thought and work of folks like W.B. Yates and George Bernard Shaw, it's impossible or was impossible at that point for me to ignore just how prominent he had become in Joyce's work as well. I think one of the reasons that not too much has been said is the consensus, and this goes back to Richard Ellman and his famous biography of James Joyce, was that uh, Joyce had moved quickly past Nietzsche's thought. It was a kind of juvenile fascination, which he outgrew very quickly and really played no important role in his work. Um, there may be something to that. I do think his mind changed over time about Nietzsche's thought, but, you know, even 1914, even late in the composition of Ulysses, actually going into the 1920s. He's still alluding to Nietzsche. Nietzsche's still part of the kind of discursive environment uh, that his characters inhabit. So it's certainly not that uh, he was out of sight and out of mind entirely. He, He continued to play a role all the way through. And that's, um, you know, One of my efforts, of course, is to say, just to show how important a role he continued to play, even in the late stages of um, Joyce composing Ulysses.
1: And then as we move into chapter four, you talk about the writings uh, this, this kind of strain of propaganda and the writings of Thomas Kettle and the kind of, uh, quote, duel between Nietzsche and civilization. Um, can you talk more about that? And, and how that really played a part in how he was influenced by Nietzsche's ideas.
0: Yeah, so I alluded to this earlier, but I should elaborate on some things. So th- this chapter um, is an instance of how these minor figures in Irish modernism who might not be familiar to general readers or even you know, scholars of modernism in other contexts, uh, how they were also Interested in Nietzsche, responding to Nietzsche, uh, so that it wasn't just these major figures who had a kind of preoccupation. It was Irish culture more broadly that was responding to Nietzsche's example. Uh, Thomas Kettle, uh, as I mentioned before, a a devout Catholic, um, really a kind of Renaissance man in some ways. uh, A a lawyer, a parliamentarian, a poet, a poet. Uh, uh, a writer of, of, of many sorts of things. Uh, eventually the professor, of, first professor of national economics at University College Dublin, and also a gun runner, <laughs> as I alluded to before. So he had quite a career, a short life. He died um, in the Battle of the Somme, actually, in the First World War. He uh, was a close friend of Joyce's for a time very much, uh, you know, one of the figures that Joyce and Yeats and the other uh, Irish intellectuals at the time would have been aware of. And he wrote an introduction to an early translation of a French biography of Nietzsche by Daniel Halevy. And that was one of uh, the early introductions of the Irish public to Nietzsche's thought. Uh, the biography was translated by Joseph Hone, a close friend of W.B. Yeats, and publicized in Irish newspapers as an Irish version of Nietzsche, because these two Irishmen had been involved in the English translation of the work. Kettle's introduction is a bit dismissive of Nietzsche, given Kettle's own religious and political orientation, but it's a fairly nuanced response, nonetheless, and quite nuanced, given the Uh, the tenor of the other responses uh, that were coming out at the time. So uh, that was an introduction, yet another introduction of Nietzsche to the English-speaking world. And then, as I've alluded to, when Kettle went off to run guns for the uh, Irish Republican Brotherhood, he got stranded in Belgium, wrote these newspaper articles. And what's fascinating there is that those articles became – the groundwork for a whole strain of British propaganda during the First World War. So this Irishman served this sort of uh, strange and surprising role in that effort. And uh, he also uh, became rather uh, renowned in Ireland for this to the point that when he returned to Ireland after leaving Belgium, joining the British army uh, in London on the way back to Dublin and then going on recruiting tours to help the Allied war effort, recruiting Irishmen to fight for the British. Uh, Yates responded to him in a public setting, sort of mocking the way that he had demonized Nietzsche. Uh, The next day, the uh, newspapers uh, read that Dublin audiences had applauded Nietzsche because in the process of demonizing uh, Nietzsche, Kettle had made him an explicitly anti-British figure, and as the logic goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, Nietzsche had become a kind of uh, popular figure among the Irish for his anti-British sentiments at the time. So it's a rather involved story, um, but it shows you just how uh, much uh, Nietzsche's ideas had begun to circulate in Ireland, how many figures were involved in this effort and um, how prominent Nietzsche's name became in the decades after his uh, his death. He became a kind of pop culture figure during the First World War in a way that he could have never anticipated, of course, and in a way that really didn't do in service to the, the intricacies, intricacies of his thought but certainly made him popular and widely read um, by an audience that he wouldn't have reached uh, in other other ways.
1: And you conclude the book by, with a chapter called Post-War the Forerunner and which, as you just mentioned, Nietzsche remains this figure, this important figure for pretty much all Irish writers across the board. What do you think was really the most significant idea or writing that really came out of that post-war period that was influenced by Nietzsche's ideas?
0: Well, um, a number of works, uh, Yeats, a vision, his strange kind of mystical text that was written through automatic writing, channeled through his wife and <laughs> transcribed by him. Uh, and then, uh, um, Shaw's play Back to Methuselah, which is the sprawling five-part Pentateuch, as he called it, the five-part play, um, which is a work of um, sort of theological speculation, a work of um, political commentary, and a work of science fiction. It goes from the Garden of Eden to 30,000 years in the future, if you can imagine that. Um, and then as I alluded to earlier, the later chapters of Ulysses, the Oxen of the Sun chapter in particular, was also influenced by Nietzsche. So all of these works, um, despite their many other influences, are taking up and responding to elements of Nietzsche's thought. This idea of the Ubermensch or some kind of, um, you know, future for humanity beyond its current state Um, is important for all of those thinkers uh, or writers uh, and gives them a means to articulate a vision of Europe and to a certain extent of Ireland after the Second World War and after Irish independence had been achieved. So he becomes a kind of prophetic figure who's woven into the prophetic writing of each of those uh, authors Uh, in the early 1920s as they look past the recent cataclysm and into some unknown future. And uh, part of that for Yeats and Shaw is this eugenicist thinking, and Nietzsche had been increasingly associated with that, and he was used by the two of them to further their own ideas in that regard. But then in Joyce's case, there's a lot of skepticism about eugenics and all, we've already said about Nietzsche's example as well, increasingly so as you went along. So his response to Nietzsche is also a response to ideas about breeding and eugenics and so forth that were uh, part of the nationalist movements to a certain degree, and then part of the sort of post-war intellectual milieu as well. So all that gets bound up in Nietzsche's thought in the work of these writers during that uh, that post-war period.
1: And I have to thank you for this conversation. Thank you for this book. I, I really appreciated reading it. And I really um, certainly appreciate that you were able to write about Nietzsche in an accessible way. So I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, That was certainly one of the efforts. I'm glad that uh, achieved that to some degree.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think it's it, it's it was really such a fascinating read because I had never really thought about Nietzsche as being an influence on these Irish writers. They're such prolific writers, and 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 seeing these very well known and, and names, and so for me it was really fascinating to see how this all connected. And and you really did a, a great job just making it these really clear connections. And like, wow, that actually seems obvious. Like when you're talking about Ulysses, you're like, actually, yes, that makes sense. (laughs) Um, So, so yeah, this is really a wonderful book. Um, I've appreciated the three conversations we've now had, uh, which has been, has been wonderful and three very different topics. And, uh, and I'm curious, and I'm sure our listeners are curious, what, what are you currently working on? What's, what's your next project as, as you wrapped up these, these three awesome projects in the last few years?
0: Well, thank you, first Marcy, for for slogging through all three books and um, guiding three very stimulating conversations. I've really enjoyed it and, and very much appreciate it. Uh, well, I'm still a bit in recovery mode after publishing three books
1: sure. last year, <laughs> but
0: I have um, I'm starting a book on another unlikely topic, I suppose, which is Samuel Beckett and Utopia. But looking at his work um, as creating these spaces which are stripped of social, cultural, and political markers, but as a way for him to reflect on the dynamics of of power, oppression, exploitation, and so forth, all the more clearly, in a sense, sort of an x-ray of how those things work. But then uh, thinking about the sort of political implications of that against a kind of abiding pessimism and dystopian uh, element of, of many of his works as well. So that's a, a short project I'm working on. And then I have another project uh, related to the Passport book more closely, I suppose, which is about um, the, the idea of the end of travel, which is prominent in the writing of many 19th century figures that somehow travel as they knew it is over because the tourism industry is rising or because empire is over or what have you. But an idea that has stayed with us and become more prominent in the wake of of climate change, of global pandemics and other forces. So sort of tracing the, the genealogy of that idea of the end of travel through the last two centuries or so.
1: Awesome. That sounds super fascinating. So yeah, please keep me posted on those, and, and we'll we'll bring you back and and have uh, more well, stimulating well, conversations. <laughs> <correct>. <laughs> That's okay. You uh, take I'm your
0: time. Yeah. Time <laughs> awesome.
1: Thank you again for joining us, Patrick, uh, for today and the previous two episodes. Uh, I really appreciated, and uh, thank you to all of our, our listeners for tuning in. Till next time, everyone. Cheers.